News just in. The FIA has demanded that Formula E rerun the thrilling E-Prix at Monaco in which Antonio Felix da Costa overtook Mitch Evans on the last lap to win the race. Because at the moment this event took place, 99% of motorsport fans were actually watching F1 qualifying in Barcelona. Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. I'm Gareth, but you knew that. Down in South London is Alex Goy. Hi. And in a different part of South London, Zog. Hello. And only just with us for fleeting moments, because she's got to be elsewhere, but right now she's in Southwest London, Sarah Leach. Hello. Sarah, you're off somewhere exciting, aren't you? I am, I am. I'm actually leaving the UK. I've got all the COVID tests to prove it. <laughs> that is incredible. You are the first person I think I've had a conversation with in ages who's allowed to leave the UK. You're not going to Australia, though, are you? Where are you going? I'm going to Barcelona. Still the sunshine. A little bit warmer, but yeah, I'm quite thrilled about it. And this isn't a holiday, this is actually work, isn't it? It's a work trip, yes. Come on, tell us why. I mean, I know (laughs) it's a Formula One connected trip, but it's not for the Grand Prix, which of course happened yesterday. So there's not going to be a complete grid of drivers there. Who's there? Why are you going? What are you doing? Okay, well, I'm working for a company at the moment that is one of the main sponsors of Alpine, which is Fernando Alonso and Esteban Ocon's team. And they are putting together a film for the Cannes Lion Film Festival, Creativity. So part of my role is going to Barcelona to interview Fernando Alonso, who will be part of this. And the film that they're putting together is showcasing their creativity and what they can do do to help with fan engagement and so the idea of this film is the future of sport and technology and the fact that they are a sponsor of the Alpine Formula One team. Formula One is a sport that is riddled with technology. In fact that's a huge part of the sport so it's a good example to showcase their creativity. So they're using a virtual production and XR studio where the CEO will interview Fernando as live from his XR studio. So the interview that I'll do with Fernando He'll come up on like a virtual screen. It'll look like it's a live conversation between Fernando Alonso and the CEO of Rise on Media, which is Guru. And uh, he's got quite a long surname. And I wouldn't attempt to (laughs) say that right now without practicing a couple of times. (laughs) We've got all these animations going and it's all about 5G. And it's very interesting, actually. But that's the project I'm working on. Are you actually conducting the interview with Alonso? Or is it your questions that someone else is going to be asking? Well, they're my questions. But my questions are in line with a script that we've put together. So. So it's a bit more rigid, perhaps a little bit more corporate. So it's not a free-flowing journalistic editorial interview. Right. But I will interview him to make sure that we get the content that we need to put this film together adequately because we're actually going to ask him about the technology in Formula One and all the data and everything that he collects and also the direction from his engineers around the overtake and he'll tell us about what he experiences data-wise and also performance-wise and his natural instincts as a driver to perform a successful overtake. So we've got like an animation of aerodynamics, tyre degradation, Delta, and it's quite cool actually. I think you'll be interested to see it when it's done. And then part of the film... 
We are also interviewing Laurent Rossi, who's the team principal. I would be going to Paris if I didn't have to quarantine for seven days on arrival. So we're going to do that shoot remotely and use a production company from Paris. This is going to be good. It's a good job to have. It's a shame that you're not actually in a room with Fernando in a less formal setting, Sarah, because I would insist... Well, I will be on the grid with him in front of a car. He'll be wearing his race gear. He'll be standing in front of a car and we'll be at the Barcelona track. So it'll still be sort of, you know, right. cool in a way. But you won't be able to ask him any questions for Gareth Jones on speed and shove a microphone up his nose, will you? Perhaps not. Yeah, I may not get paid at the end of the week if I start going rogue. Okay, assuming that, Alex, Zog... If we could do that, right, if we could instruct Sarah to ask one key question to Fernando Alonso, and apparently it is Alonso, not Alonso, better get that right. What would we ask Fernando Alonso? Z? What the hell, dude? I don't know, just because, why not? Do you know that my friends think that he looks like the guy out of Talladega Nights? Actually, he does. they they, They think that I should say to him, you're really good on Talladega Nights. <laughs> <laughs> be quite, you know, yeah. That's a great film. We may have said before that Sasha Baron Cohen has to be heading the running to star in the Fernando Alonso biopic whenever it happens. Yeah. No question. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely brilliant. Alex, what would you ask Alonso if you had a chance? Oh, I am, of course, the master of all things Formula One. Um, <laughs> who are you, you'd say? <laughs> not who are you. I want to know, I genuinely want to know what he thinks of that chair meme. Yeah? <laughs> yes. Because yeah, yeah, it's yeah. all the racing all the time. That's fine. There are people far better qualified than me to ask him uh, racing questions. I want to know what he feels like being turned into a meme. Like, people all over the world has no idea of his incredible accomplishments in motorsport. I am partially one of those. But I know him as the man sleeping on a chair meme. Him and Bernie Sanders together, I think it'd be golden. But, yeah, I want to know what he thinks about that. Do you know, in the days when Ron Dennis owned McLaren, that would never been allowed to have happened. And it's largely thanks to the demise of Ron Dennis that we saw these sort of more witty moments around the McLaren team at the time. So what would you ask him? In all seriousness, I think a question that I might ask him would be what single technical innovation or new technology in your time in F1 has made the most difference to the way you drive or to the approach the drivers have to take because he's the kind of driver who's very technically able and understands a lot more of what's going on than I think some drivers do who maybe are a little more instinctive of what they do and he's got the kind of brain that understands a lot more of the technical side of things and he's been in the sport a while and we often talk or speculate about how some of the newer technologies are making cars much easier to drive Mm -hmm. almost always easier to drive not harder but I'd like to know what single thing in terms of new tech on the cars did he feel made the most difference to the way that he and the other drivers have to approach driving the cars? There you go, Sarah. If ever there's a moment, if this conversation all dries up and they've time and there's one more question, pass that one from Zog. Okay. I know you've got to go, but here's a question from me that you can ask Fernando if you get a chance. Ask him, what does he consider more difficult? Winning the Indianapolis 500 or being quicker than Esteban Ocon. Oh, that's quite <laughs> cheeky, isn't it? 
That'll go down well. It is a bit cheeky. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd make that your last question. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Sarah, I need to pick your brain about travelling internationally for work yes. because I have to do that in a couple of weeks as well. Oh, yeah, I'm now the serial expert, so yes, more than happy to help, yes. I would like your experiences, yeah, yeah, please. for sure, no problem. Sarah, send us a virtual postcard. Tweet something on Twitter with a picture of you in Spain with Fernando Alonso with a hashtag on speed. I will, I will, I will, I will. I'll make sure I get a photo with him. I will. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you. Adios, bye. querida. Adios. Okay, enjoy bye-bye. it. Enjoy the interview. Fun. We are so jealous. She's going away oh, yeah. into the world, the actual world. God, blimey. Hey, but Alex, you've been out and about in near space recently in an incredible car. What was it? I've been in something called a Zenvo I don't know if I'm speaking for all of us here, but what earth is that? It looked very carbon fibery. It's very carbon fibery. It is made by Denmark's only car manufacturer, Zenvo. The TSRS is the ultimate road-going Zenvo. Now, if my memory serves, the first one was called the ST, and then there was another ST, then there was the TS, then the TSR, which is basically a track-only hyper-mega nutter car, then the TSRS, which is the one I drove, which is basically a 911 GT3 RS. Oh, is that what it is underneath? No, 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 not underneath, but that's kind of what you would put it next to. If you have, like, hypercar strata compared to real cars, so a Bugatti Veyron mm. would be a Porsche 911 Turbo S. Yeah. The Zenvo is a GT3 RS. Right, yeah, yeah. So it's more track-biased, it's very raw, it's very hardcore. So basic stats, it's got 1,177 horsepower. That's not enough. It's got like 800-and-something pound-foot. It's a twin-supercharged 5.8-litre V8 that was built and developed in-house because the company founder, a man called Trolls Volotson, who is the coolest man in the world... He's called Troll! Well, Trolls, I think it is. T-R-O-E-L-S. Okay, right. And he spent his youth basically making slower cars really fast... And I interviewed him. If you have a subscription to Business Insider, it's all on there. They started out making a lightweight sports car. And then because he doesn't really like stuff under a thousand billion horsepower, he went, nah, sod it, let's build an engine. So he designed and built his own engine. The wonderful thing was I kind of looked at him when he was talking about it. I went, so you built your, isn't that really difficult? He's like, not for me. <laughs> oh, hello. It's just this ludicrous, pointy, angry thing. The design of the car, if you look up the ST1 and then the TSRS, it's an evolution. So it's been around since 2007, Zenvo. Right. And they only build like five cars a year. They're all hand built on site. Most of the kit is made at their factory. So all the carbon fiber, the engine, they develop their own gearbox there. So they've got a sort of helical cut dog gearbox. They've got dog gears on it. I don't understand what those words mean, but I'm told it means it's basically a racing gearbox. Because what I was told was that he was like, well, you know, all these other guys, they get these gearboxes that are designed to be smooth and try and make them fast. Because, you know, of a Chiron, you don't want to be kind of an aggressive, angry thing when you're tootling around town. Same for Pagani Waira, right? Yeah. What he wanted, what he said was, well, these gearboxes, they're never going to be fast, fast. They're never going to be instant change. So I wanted to make a fast gearbox smooth. And so he used a dog box. And I can tell you now, he did not manage it. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe smooth is a relative thing, you know. Smooth is a relative term. So in road mode, it's not slush-o-matic. It leaps. You feel the changes. 
in race mode yeah that's not smooth but it is in race mode yeah. now you pull the paddle when you're properly on it and you have to be careful where you're properly on it because the top of second is goodbye license it's mm. limited to 202 miles an hour probably just as well really yeah more than that it just gets silly but now when you pull the paddle it lurches forward just goes bang into gear and then you hear a bang and i'm told i obviously couldn't see it that the bang is flames firing out of the back of the car <laughs> which is just brilliant of course yeah, and so every, every time you go bang 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 the chap from Zenvo was there with me. I was like, what is that? I said, oh, we call those the sonic booms. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Where were you driving it? On a track or on public roads? Oh, no, the roads around Milton Keynes. Oh, lots of roundabouts then. Oh, so many roundabouts. Roundabouts, little stretches of dual carriageway. Yeah. And, yeah not, I surprised not a few Skoda Fabias, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it was a really bizarre thing. The really cool thing about this car, though, is it has something called, I think it's a centripetal wing. So it's got an enormous wing on the back. And so you get cars with active aero. Yeah. Now, active aero is normally, oh, there's a flap here and there that kind of closes and opens, and maybe the wing is used as an air brake. The angle changes for an air brake, This yeah. not only tilts forward and back, but also left to right. The idea being that when you're on track, it will then balance itself. So if you're turning left, the wing... So hang on, I need to run through this in my head. If you're turning left... It stays flat, so it rolls right. No, it violently tilts the opposite direction to put more downforce on the inside wheel. It rolls with the car. Okay, it's really weird because your inside wheel is going to have a bit of a tendency to lift as you're going through mm. the corner because of weight, and so you're using some of the aero to counteract that. So if you then point the wing and the airflow at it, okay. I was like, it's ridiculous. It doesn't really do its thing at road speeds, or at least the speeds I was going at on road because I don't want to go to prison, <laughs> but. It has a mode where you can press a button and it sort of dances. It wibbles from left to right and left to right. Volatson said, oh, well, you know, I went to bed thinking about how to solve this downforce problem that just made itself apparent to me. And I woke up and I figured it out and then we made it. It was great. No. And it's just weird. Zog, we call it a centripetal wing. I'm wondering why, because centripetal force is the force that's necessary to keep an object moving in a curved path. Whereas centripetal effect is the force that throws an object out. Is that right? My first thought here is that in using the term centrifugal and centripetal, it seems to be very easy to get them the wrong way round. Yeah. And they're both often misused in relation to the forces that you get when you're spinning a weight around on the end of a string. Yeah. And is centrifugal force the force that's holding the weight onto the string? Or is it the force that's pulling the string outwards? Honestly, I can't quite remember. I know that one goes one way, one goes the other. Yeah. I could still probably write down some of the equations there, but I couldn't actually remember which way round the centrifugal and the centripetal are going. But as long as you've got a grasp on the principles, I think that matters more than exactly what you're calling the stuff. Either way, air flows over car, wing bends, more downforce or more grip at the rear, more traction at the rear so you can corner faster. The cool thing, well, the coolest thing about this is that I think, because I can't quite remember, it is the man who runs Lego owns one of these and he tracks it like a boss. Ah, <laughs> the richest man in Denmark, probably. So does that mean there'll be another 300 quid Lego Technic 
car along in the near future which will be one of these guys probably not because it's not well known enough. if you look at the shape of the zenvo it's like it really lends itself to lego technic because all of those lego technic cars are chuffing ugly <laughs> they don't look anything like the cars <sighs> oh, they've done very well i think and you uh, didn't get anything like the top performance and top speed out of the car where you were alex no, did you? i was probably driving around milton Keynes. i did not i was afforded the opportunity to play with it on road and play i did but i didn't tickle 200 miles an hour because I'm not insane. But what I did learn from it is... My point of reference to these things is Bugatti, because years ago I drove a Veyron. I haven't driven Chiron, but I've played in a Veyron. And the way that delivers its power is amazingly torquey. So like when you're in a diesel and you hit that narrow torque band, you just all of a sudden rocket up the rev range. The Veyron feels like that all the time. That kind of heavy, but really quite brisk acceleration. It is mad. The Zenvo doesn't feel like that at all. It's a much lighter car. It's just over 1,400 kilos, which is still heavy, but it's decent. But the way it delivers its power, you get 5-litre V8 naturally aspirated funsies, and then at the top of the rev range, the supercharger really kicks in, and it feels so light and so otherworldly. It's more akin to a Lotus. It feels like a Lotus Exige, but massive and Danish and worth several million quid. (laughs) I love a supercharger. Zog, do you remember when we had an Elise SC a very, very, oh, yeah. very long time ago? Very good transport to the British Grand Prix. That's right, yeah. yeah. That was, gosh, 2008 or something like that. It was a lifetime ago. Love the supercharger. I'm very envious you got to drive that car. It's probably just as well that you didn't get anywhere near the top speed of that car. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to read and hear more, do head to BritishGQ and RodenTrack.com. <laughs> good man, Alex. There's my plug to make sure they keep commissioning me for stuff so I can eat. This is the mothership. This is what this show exists for, to plug all the other stuff amongst other things. So, on the subject of speed, you've got some speed news this week, haven't you? Yes, new speed record. The Parker Solar Probe, a NASA mission which is currently orbiting the sun and sending back lots of lovely, interesting data for scientists to crunch and better understand the sun. Yeah, Parker Solar Probe mission, that is our closest mission yet to the sun, has set a new speed record for a man-made object hitting over 300,000 miles per hour this week. Boy! Boy, oh boy, that is fast. My Zenvo isn't as fast as that. <laughs> it's not much slower, though, let's be if honest. If you threw it at the sun hard enough, I'm guessing it'll get close. But yeah, and, and it's going to carry on getting faster and faster because that's how the orbital dynamics work a slingshot around the sun as featured in Star Trek. Isn't that how you travel through time? Ah, well, yeah, this is orbiting rather than slingshotting around because it wants to hang around for longer. Okay, it's staying within the orbit. Yeah, this is orbiting rather than slingshotting. A slingshot around the sun is a one-shot, which a lot of... Interplanetary probes do that, don't they? A lot of probes heading for the outer solar system have used flybys, used a gravity assist flyby to pick up speed from a planet. So basically, if you're a tiny little pioneer or Voyager probe and you make a close flyby of a massive planet at the right trajectory, you pick up a bit of extra speed and that kind of catapults you off to your next outer solar system destination. And of course, this is one of the things that made the Grand Tour that the Voyager spacecraft did after launching in the 70s possible. We basically didn't have powerful enough rockets to send a probe out to the outer solar system that could stop off at Saturn, Jupiter, and a bunch of other moons. Mm. But some 
clever number crunchers at NASA figured out that there was this window opportunity to use a couple of planetary flybys to slingshot voyagers out on some quite clever trajectories through the outer solar system. But that's outer solar system, inner solar system, whole other bunch of problems because you get close to the sun, you get very hot. You've actually got to scrub off speed a lot of the time if you're heading towards the sun. You've got to scrub off energy in order that you don't swing by the sun. But yes, the Parker Solar Probe has set a new human speed record. Go Parker! So I'm detecting that you might need to lubricate the chair. The chair, that you're yeah, sitting yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'll. I'll Are you hearing the squeak? Yeah, tiny, well, no, tiny I just know that happens sometimes. <laughs> Took me a while to work out what okay, that was. That's so funny. And there's been some other big space stuff this week. Oh yeah, super space news. Two things in particular. Got to respect NASA for the fifth flight now of the Ingenuity helicopter on Mars which rather beautifully has a tiny, tiny fragment of the fabric of the Wright Flyer. Now, the Wright Flyer was the first powered aircraft on Earth, and Ingenuity is carrying a little bit of that to be the first powered flight on Mars. Fantastic. That's so wonderful. And it proves that this technology of sending rovers to other planets with a drone that will in future be able to go ahead of the land-based rover and seek out new life, new civilizations, whatever <laughs> it is they're trying to do, to boldly go where no one's gone before. Well, that is what they're looking for. Yeah. And also, can we have a small round of applause from all three of us here for Starship SN15? Oh, the first prototype of SpaceX's Starship to nail the landing. Oh, my trousers. That was brilliant. I know you watched it live, Zog. Yeah. Alex, do you watch the Starship launches ever live? I don't, but I know when they're on because I follow you on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, space is happening. Brilliant. Admittedly, I've had a busy weekend of doing work stuff, so I've been nose to the grindstone, but... I think it's an incredible achievement. Set aside your feelings about SpaceX and what have you. Like, reusable rockets is a really good thing. And the fact yeah. it's working more and more and more. Yeah, there were some explosions on the way, but doesn't matter. It means we're getting there. Progress is happening. And that's hugely important. Yep, every explosion yeah. prevents yeah. an explosion further down the line, I mm. reckon. We are indeed yeah. boldly going when no one's gone so far. Michael Massey, as F1's race director, you're at the heart of any debate and controversy regarding track limits. Yes, it's correct. It's been said that you're being a little flexible on interpreting the rules at the moment. No, 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 no. There's no track limit. Uh, infringement that we won't enforce rigidly. And regarding flexible rear wings... We're clamping down on them as well because we think they are too unlimited. Stop it now. Just stop it. Yeah, sorry, mate. This is Gareth Jones on Speed, boldly going where I don't think we've actually been before. If you follow me on Twitter, you will know that I'm a bit of a Star Trek fan. A um, bit? <laughs> too much of a Star Trek fan. But I'm not alone in this because, Alex, you're a massive Star Trek fan too. I am unashamedly a colossal nerd. That television programme got me through my childhood because when it was yep. repeated on BBC Two... 
I fell in love with the world, the diplomacy, the look and the feel. I'm at my desk right now, and on top of my soundbar is an Enterprise D, a Defiant, and an Enterprise E. I love it. You are not alone. I'm actually wearing a next-generation bloody uniform as we speak. He is, listeners. He is. I've got an Enterprise. I've got a Borg Cube. I've got a Vengeance. I've got, yeah, too much Trek. And so you're a Trekker, but it's the movies is probably your area of Trek, isn't it? Uh, well, actually, no, original series. I'm not as big a Star Trek nerd as either of you guys, but I love Star Trek from when I first saw it and for me it was original series having now grown up and watched at least some of many star trek spin-offs and associated works and the films and going back and looking some of it i am still knocked out by how good the original series is agreed we call it the old testament in this house you know without (laughs) the original star trek there would not be this some 50 years of this glorious painted universe it's wonderfully thought through world which is flawed some series are flawed but let's talk through it then because i reckon there's a venn diagram of people who like cars and like star trek and if that's you listening to this program right now you've come to the right place because we're going to talk about the cars in Star Trek. And there were quite a few cars in the original series, Zog, weren't there? There were a few, and it was interesting because I had to go back and have a quick look at this. And really, I remember the vehicles that were in the original series were mostly kind of you know, early 20th century stuff that turns up when, for some reason or another, the Enterprise has gone back to 20th century Earth. Yeah. Is it 20th century Earth within living memory of, say, the 1930s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Remarkably close to, yes, remarkably close to that, surprisingly enough. One thing that strikes you, you know, looking back at some of these things, is it's remarkable how many planets, for some reason or other, end up developing in a way that precisely parallels 20th century Earth. Yeah. Now, sometimes there's a good reason for that, and we'll get to that. But Can I interject with a quote from Austin Powers? Yeah. Isn't it funny how the British countryside looks absolutely nothing like Southern California? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but Very it, good. I know where you're going. It is surprising how many cars turn up in a series about a starship Exploring the universe. Yeah, give us some examples. Well, the first series, there's an episode called Miri, which I'm sure you will both know. Which was actually banned in the UK. It was shown on the initial run, then it was withdrawn from repeats for many years. Was it? Because it was deemed to be too frightening, too shocking, actually. Really? That's the episode where they go to a planet where the kids are the only people alive and all the grups, the grown-ups, have died. And there's some very menacing scenes where kids are beating up, well... Members of the Starship Enterprise crew, as it goes. Sorry, I don't need to go that far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have relieved me of the burden of summarising the episode. You've just... Thank you very much. (laughs) That Um, sounds horrific. It is scary. (laughs) It's a good episode. And arriving on this ruined pseudo-Earth, there are a bunch of wrecked cars in the deserted streets. It's actually pretty hard to work out what they are, but certainly one of them was a 1947 Cadillac Fleetwood. Lovely. Other than that, it's a bit hard to figure out what they are. So there's that episode. Then later in the first season, we get an episode, which, by the way, I think is one of the best sci-fi episode titles ever. City on the Edge of Forever. Oh, gosh, yeah. Mm. Isn't that a title? Yeah. City on the Edge of Forever. Also, I believe, a bit of a fan favourite episode. It's one that people often pick out as being one of their favourites. Correct. In this one, briefly, Bones goes a bit nuts because he accidentally injects himself with some stuff that he was supposed to be injecting to a patient. Goes a bit bonkers, 
beams down to the planet they're orbiting and jumps through a time gate thing. Yes, the Guardian of Forever. Which sends him back to 1930s New York. Weird, that. Kirk and Spock have to go and save him, bring him back from 1930s New York before he does anything terrible that will change the course of Earth's history. Which, of course, he does immediately. And as soon as he's jumped through the loop, they find they can no longer speak to the Enterprise because the Enterprise doesn't exist, because Bones has changed history. And we pass over the question of why the landing party on the planet doesn't get erased from history while the ship that brought them to the planet has been erased. We'll <laughs> skip over those kind of... But, you know, time travel stories always have trouble with this kind of stuff. Wibbly-wobbly, tiny-wimey stuff. Precisely. So moving swiftly on, they find themselves in 1930s New York... With Joan Collins. Yes, that's right. Playing a significant role in the episode. It's a really good episode. They have to find Bones in Depression-era New York and get him back without messing with history. And so you've got a bunch of 20s and 30s vehicles milling around in the background. You know, Buicks, Chevys, 928, 1930 Chevys. American Iron. And then a slight anomaly, a truck that plays a major role in the plot. I'm not going to give any spoilers, just in case anyone's going to go and watch this in the near future. A truck that plays a major role in the plot is actually a 1939 GMC AC series, apparently. And stories set a good few years earlier than that, so... Oops. A slight time anomaly there, but no biggie. But it's a very good episode. If you're looking for a bit of old-school Star Trek to remind yourself how good the original is, City on the Edge of Forever is a good one. Yeah. Then in season two, we've got a piece of the action, also weirdly set in a 1930s... 1930s gangsters uh, cars. <laughs> 1930s America, although in this case they're not time-travelling back to actual 1930s America. In this case, they've come across a planet which is populated by a society of mimics. Yep. And a previous pre-prime directive mission had left behind a book about 1930s Chicago gangsters, as a result of which this planet has entirely modelled itself on 1930s Chicago gangster culture. Or, in fact, more precisely, on trashy B-movies depicting 1930s gangster culture. Because this is yep. Chicago 30s gangsters with the gaudy patter, the wide lapels, the heat-packing moles turned up to 11. And manages to pull it off. Despite the obvious absurdity of it, it's also very funny and quite smart. There's a lot of humour in Star Trek. And it's stuff full of Studebakers, mm. 1929 Buicks in there. Lovely. A couple of very nice Cadillacs are prominently featured. Nice. A 1932 on V16 is used for a drive-by shooting. And then later in the episode, Kirk drives a Cadillac V12, a 1931 Cadillac V12. And interestingly enough, they use the same visual gag that is used near the start of Baby Driver, where you've got a side shot of driver and passenger in car, put car in gear, car reverses out of Yes, place. that's right, yes. Um, so, so Baby Driver stole that gag from Star Trek, a piece of the action. That's in Baby Driver, is it? I haven't seen that. In that episode, is it where Spock says to Kirk, Gears, Captain, Gears. It's it's, it's, uh, Kirk is looking around. It's a clutch. To I can't quite remember. He's trying to figure out how to get this thing moving. Okay, ignition, right. Turn that on. Yeah, yeah. He moves the gear stick, crunch, and then Spock says something like, Yes, I believe cars of this era use a uh, device called a clutch. Maybe there's a pedal down there on the floor. That's right. And they figure it out. Great scene. 
one of the reasons Star Trek came about was to use props and sets that the studio had already built or had in stock for other productions, which is why this whole premise of visiting planets with parallel development and finding reasons to retcon that came about, which is why we have this situation. I can't whether it's in this or in the episode we're about to talk about. There's a throwaway line in the script about, oh yes, this planet verifies Johnson's law of parallel development or something like that. It's like, you know, somebody's law of parallel development yeah. of, of societies. But yeah, also in season two, there's a story called Bread and Circuses. You beat me to it. I was about to reference it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is where they go to a world that has a essentially a Roman society that has evolved through to the 20th century, retaining all of the old Roman ideals and bits of culture of basically bread and circuses. Slavery, circuses, entertainment for the masses... Gladiatorial combat. Precisely. And a car named after a god. Well, ah, but the name is interesting. A car called the Jupiter 8. And we know it's called the Jupiter 8 because yep. we see it briefly in a bit of show of newsreel footage near the start. And then we see this car in a magazine advert that Spock shows to Kirk when they're sort of discussing the world they're on and what this place is like. There's a magazine ad for this car, which we see is called the Jupiter 8. Yes, named after one of their gods, but also calling a fictional vehicle in a sci-fi film the Jupiter 8. For some people, that would be like calling a car a Stratocaster or a Steinway Grand. Because if you're into your keyboards, your synthesizers, Jupiter 8 is the name of one of the greatest, possibly the greatest, analogue polysynths of all time. Which didn't emerge until, what, 1980s? Yeah, 1980s. I hadn't made that connection. That's really interesting. But that car in that episode wasn't actually called the Jupiter 8. It was called the Jupiter 8 in that episode. It was called a reactor. That's right. And the car they used, Google it, it's a kind of a sleek, futuristic three-wheeler, one wheel at the back, two at the front, which had been a real vehicle. It wasn't built for the show, built by a guy called Gene Winfield, who made custom cars, and this was one of his crazy custom creations. It's a bit of a looker. It's a good-looking Oh, it's gorgeous. Car. But interestingly, it also turned up on some other programmes. Yep. It was in Bewitched. Yep. Again, what a show. Yep. And it also turned up in Batman as, I think, as Catwoman's car. The Kitty Mobile. Yeah, they basically, they, yeah. I mean, they literally stuck a couple of ears and a huge furry tail on it, and it became Catwoman's yep. car. And it followed Leonard Nimoy to Mission Impossible, I believe, as well. So that car did very well. So that was Spread and Circuses. And then there's also, briefly, might be worth mentioning, there was another episode called Assignment Earth, where... Set in 1969, I think. Close, 68. The crew going back to a uh, historical research mission and stuff they want to look into about what happened in Earth in 1968. And because they're going back to Earth in 1968 and a lot of the action revolves around a rocket launch, a Saturn V launch, and they're hanging around launch pads and NASA, we see a bunch of government vehicles some of which are actually kind of genuine government vehicles because it's NASA stock footage of the time. Ah, uh, yes, of course. And so I think there was a, a 65 Ford Falcon and a Plymouth Belvedere, I think, in the NASA stock footage. And then a similar era Dodge Coronet and a Plymouth Satellite turn up in the stuff that they shot for the episode. So, yes, you've got a few period cars and that. And also, worth mentioning... The fabulous Terry Gar, actress Terry Gar, is in... Lovely Terry Gar. Yeah. She went on to be in Saturday Night Live, didn't she, if I remember after that? Yeah, and also, of course, is in the cast of the hands-down funniest film, 
ever made Young Frankenstein. Simon's Earth was actually a pilot for a spin-off TV series that never went beyond the pilot, but they used Star Trek to shoot the pilot and get it on air. We haven't got time to do a complete and utter breakdown of every single car appearance in every episode of every Star Trek franchise. We'll be here forever. But it's an overview, Zog. The cars in the original series, there's only one futuristic car there. You've directly identified that all the other cars are cars of that period, everything up to the 1960s. That Jupiter 8 was a sci-fi custom car construction to visualise something otherworldly. All the other cars are old-fashioned because in Star Trek lore, we left wheeled vehicles behind and moved to hover cars in the 21st century. And these hover cars even appear in other Star Trek franchises. In the next generation, there's a reference to hover cars. And in fact, you see one in the very last episode of The Next Generation. And also in the animated series, you see hover cars. I don't know if we count the animated series as canon, but we actually see hover cars there. So wheeled vehicles are seen as antiques, and they would be from Star Trek's point of view. Yeah, they were. Actually, sorry, I just realised you're talking about other vehicles and other series. I just remember that one of the things about that reactor slash Jupiter 8 is that Gene Winfield, the guy that designed it, also designed the shuttlecraft for Star Trek, apparently. No, I didn't know that! Which presumably was how they came to use one of his vehicles when they wanted a futuristic vehicle for bread and circuses. I'm going to have to reference my book here because there were two designs for the shuttle. And I think Whitfield's design was the one that was actually used on television because it was so much cheaper to manufacture than the original one, which was much more extruded and more like the Enterprise. So a very thorough report on the original series. Oh, well, it's very rarely I get to actually come across a bit of Star Trek trivia that's news to you. So, hey, happy to enlighten you. Yeah, man. Alex, on the other hand, the next... Next Generation doesn't have anything like the same volume of car appearances as the original series, does it? No, it it does not. So I've done some cursory research, but apparently nowhere near as much as Zog. Good Lord. (laughs) Good Lord. So a quick nose at the Internet Movie Cars database, which is, if you like cars and you like movies, guess what? You're going to love this place. Not many, in fact. According to this lot, six and five of them were in The Big Goodbye as sort of background cars. These are the ones they can identify. The Big Goodbye, of course, is the episode where Picard becomes... What's his face? Dixon Hill. He becomes a private investigator, doesn't he? A private dick in the 40s. They swan around in, apparently, uh, Cadillac Series 61 from 1941, an unidentified 1937 Chevrolet, a DeSoto... A Lincoln Zephyr, and there's also a 1937 Dodge Touring sedan in the final series, but there's no showing of these mythical hovercars. The interesting thing is that in Star Trek Nemesis, which a lot of people think is a dreadful movie and may have been responsible for Tom Hardy going off the rails a little bit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he did say that. Yeah. Tiny bit. There is the introduction of something called the Argo. Yep. And it's the only official Starfleet wheeled vehicle in the entire Star Trek canon, we believe. Now, the thing about the Argo is that it's somehow in a shuttle pod that descends from the Enterprise. It's this sort of off-road... It's an off-roader's wet dream, essentially. It's got a very exposed chassis. It's all roll cage. There's no glass on it. It's very rugged. What looks like a V8 in it has been dubbed over like proper. Let's go to Moab and hack around. And they use it in the film... 
because they detect basically Commander Data is down there, even though he's clearly not. And they find out that it's, if you haven't seen the film, it's been 20 years. No spoilers. This is on you now. This is your fault. <laughs> and do you know who drove the Argo in that film? Was it actually Picard? Was it actually Patrick Stewart, like a boss? Yes, it was. Yeah, he drove. He's a very enthusiastic car head. He is, yeah, uh, As yeah. we know, he's conducted interviews in Formula One, hasn't he, on the podium. Mm-hmm. He is a massive Sterling Moss fan, made a documentary about him. Are you ready for a bit of a clang? Go on. I was once on a Janetta event with him. Oh. Years and years and years and years and years ago. Yeah, he and his son were invited by Janetta to go drive around Silverstone in G40s, and he was there and I was too nervous to go near him because he's really cool. Oh. Um, my problem gentlemen with the Argo so they have this vehicle that somehow lives in the shuttle pods that they happen to have with them to go and find bits of what they think is command data yeah that they're tracking with a tricorder why don't they just get a transporter and a big box yeah they have the robot to lift the heavy things to put into the big box yeah so why not leap from you know why because they wanted a car chase in star trek that's yeah, it exactly that's fine that, yeah. absolutely fine and more than a car chase a car stunt as well at the end Picard drives the Argo off the edge of a cliff and it's captured by that mm. shuttle which is also called the Argo the Argo shuttle on its load bay so you have this incredible stunt at the end and it gives reason for Data's famous line in that movie which is I've never understood the human predilection for unsafe velocities in road vehicles or something like that <laughs> yeah it's about the only time you ever have a car chase or anything like it in Star Trek. Isn't I mean, it? because I it's a largely pointless vehicle that shouldn't really be there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's cool, but why? And it's about the only one in Next Gen, isn't it? It's the only real vehicle vehicle in Next Gen. And it's cool. I dig it. Yeah. And the truth is, it's not even in the Next Gen. It's in the movie franchise, which is the Next Gen subset. So in the TV series, there are a few cars, aren't there? And it features one of my favourite... You know when you get like a random line from a film stuck in your head? Uh Uh-huh. And it just stays there and it just becomes sort of part of your life? At one point in this film, Tom Hardy's character abducts Picard. Yeah, this is Shinzon, who is the young clone of Picard. I was trying to keep it spoiler-free in case someone hasn't seen it. God, <laughs> Gareth, sort it out, man. Gareth, what? <laughs> but yes, uh, Shinzon kidnaps Picard, and Patrick Stewart kind of leans in to this facsimile of himself. This pointy, young, very Tom Hardy-looking version of himself. And he goes, full Shakespearean, why did you bring me here? And Hardy, with this withering look of a sort of man who just wants a friend, just goes, I was lonely. Yes. And it's this just, like, (laughs) wonderful delivery of it. And that line lives in my head for free. And I thought Tom Hardy was great as young Picard in mm. that. But you're right, he was so disappointed, you mentioned this before, that that film wasn't a big hit, that he turned back to drinking drugs, apparently. Yeah. And he had to dig himself out of a hole after that film. What you know what? I think he's done all right, though. He's done reasonably well. Yeah. Hey, so. right, listen, <laughs> let me whistle through some of the other Star Trek franchises. Those are the two best-known ones, I think. The original series and Next Gem. But cars appear in pretty much every aspect of Star Trek in Deep Space Nine, right from the word go, the emissary, the first episode of Deep Space Nine, you get a Ford Model T. 
Past Tense Part 2, Cisco is transported back in time. That's full of cars. Little Green Men, which is the story of Roswell in, what, 1958. That's full of military vehicles from the 1940s, Jeeps and things. This is all Deep Space Nine. Far Beyond the Stars, Cisco goes into a coma. Imagines he's an underappreciated science fiction writer in the 50s. There are loads and loads and loads of cars in that. Studebaker, Hudson's, Oldsmobiles, lots of American iron coupes, sedans, all sorts of things from the period. Julian Bashir gets to ride in a limo, although you don't see the outside of it, you only see the inside of it, in one episode of Deep Space Nine called A Simple Investigation. In Voyager, and I'm sure you both will recognise this, what would you say the most famous road vehicle in Voyager is? There are two in Voyager. Which would you say is the most famous? The most famous for being in Voyager or the most famous vehicle that was in Voyager? The one which has the greatest presence in Voyager, the, the series. The Camaro. Oh, okay. I would have said Sarah Silverman's VW Microbus oh, in Future's yeah, End. I forgot about that. Every time I rewatch it, which is depressingly regularly, <laughs> I was going, oh, yeah, I forgot Sarah Silverman was in this. And interestingly, that Microbus doesn't have the VW badge on the nose. It's been taken off for some reason. I know in the 80s, a lot of rappers were stealing VW badges, but I think it was taken off because of undue prominence of a certain brand who weren't paying for presents on the program uh, should i watch this episode of voyager because i must admit I've, oh it's fantastic you know, man. Uh, it's a two-parter you know how the original series happened to go back to a facsimile of earth around the time that they maybe were making the show yeah, yeah. well this particular two-parter travels back to mid-1990s california it's weird that isn't it <laughs> it's God. so strange that must have been tougher than where can we do the exteriors for this I don't know I love Sarah Silverman but I haven't been totally on board with many of the post original series Star Trek spin-offs as I think I mentioned to you the other day Gareth I'd been re-watching some original series episodes yeah. because I had another gut discovery and it had confirmed that yes it is awful and not worth watching which is unfortunate because there's some good stuff about it but yes yeah, so I'd gone back to the series yada yada but I love Sarah Silverman, so I'm going to have to check out this episode of Voyager. She's great in that. She is the great. first time She's I came great. across her was in, in it's that. It's got time travel, it's got Sarah Silverman, it's got rampant capitalism, it's brilliant. It's got Bill Gates. It's definitely not Bill Gates. Yeah, definitely not him. Okay, I'm there. No, I'm going to watch it. You mentioned the Camaro there, which is a 69 Camaro, which it's Tom Paris, who is effectively the pilot of, what certainly one of the bridge crew of Voyager, who's a real 20th century aficionado, and he likes to tinker with cars on the holodeck and he's got a virtual Chevy Camaro which he works with as well he's got a hollow program called Grease Monkey which is why I've got a t-shirt called Grease Monkey somewhere which I like to wear sometimes are you aware that you can actually buy software that will simulate repairing and restoring a car really had you come across this well that's all Tom's doing isn't I it I came across this a couple of months ago slightly <laughs> baffling slightly baffling Zog come on now you just buy an old car. <laughs> Come on. Hey, we're grown-ups. We've seen much weirder things on the internet. True, the elsewhere. internet is a terrifying place. I did sort of wonder, that is definitely the kind of thing where, you know, you want to do that thing, just do it for real or don't do it. Don't make a simulation of it. It's definitely a simulation too far. Yeah, make a simulation of something that isn't possible, perhaps. In Voyager, there are lots and lots of cars. There's a Ford truck found floating in space in the episode The 37s. There's one episode which Tom Paris's knowledge of how carburetors work saves an alien, I think he's called Steph. He's able to save or repair 
this alien's warp drive or drive system because he understands how carburetors work. It's basically like a carburetor. I could fix that. So hang on. So an advanced alien civilization yeah. has a warp drive. Yep. Yeah that is basically no more complicated than a carburetor. But it's only analogous. Mm. It's analogous to a carburetor. Analogous, yeah, I mean... I'm... As we know, a carburetor operates by being a venturi. It accelerates air particles, in our case, by forcing them through a narrow gap. That venturi with a narrow intake yeah. and a wider efflux forces that, and somehow they're accelerating particles. Hey, it's like a carburetor, so let's build something which... Uh, I can't remember the exact details, but yeah. Okay, yeah, it sounds like it may been a bit of a reach but i'm sure it worked in the story most of star trek's a reach <laughs> that's why we love it in someone to watch over me a fantastic love story episode of voyager balana talks about having driving lessons tom paris takes the delta flyer into a sort of space grand prix in one episode and you'd think that would be one of my favorite star trek episodes ever because it's essentially motor racing in outer space with spacecraft but it's rubbish if memory serves, Gareth, the reason this wouldn't be your favourite episode of Star Trek because of motor racing in space is because they didn't have the budget to make a very decent looking motor race in space. Yeah. It was all in cockpit. Whoa, yeah. what's that over there? Yeah, yeah, it was a bit poor. But they did have rather nice sort of race overall versions of Starfleet uniforms in that episode, which I kind of liked. In Enterprise, there are lots of cars as well. In fact, a Toyota concept car, the Toyota Fine N from 2003, appears in Enterprise. And that was a hydrogen fuel cell car from Toyota. It makes an appearance. Very often you find concept cars used in sci-fi situations because they are examples of sci-fi thinking in enterprise in the episode carpenter street again the time travel episode they're weaked back to 2004 archer gets to drive a dodge ram pickup truck i think that episode starts with a 1970s i think it's a mercury station wagon so right from the word go cars in star trek in discovery i've discovered no cars as yet apart from the Land Rover Discovery, which is a car named yeah. with the same name. That's about as close as you get. In Lower Decks, the new animated comedy series... Which is brilliant. It's brilliant. It's excellent. It's pretty good, yeah. It is. I do like it. I prefer the Orville, but I love Lower Decks. And the Argo, again, appears in that, or something very, very like the Argo appears in that. There's some reference to cars in an episode where aliens decide, instead of having trial by combat, they should have trial by motor race. <laughs> in the animated series i mentioned that didn't i the hover cars in that in the movies in the voyage home there's loads of cars another time travel episode with an america in the 80s that's the one where kirk steps out onto the streets of san francisco he's nearly knocked over by a taxi and the driver calls kirk a dumbass and because he doesn't know how to swear because he's from the future kirk turns around and says and a double dumbass on you <laughs> sort of my favorite moments in all of star trek that i love that but in the new movies there's an awful lot of cars jj abrams has brought a great deal of cars to the new star trek movies the 2009 star trek reboot features a corvette which is stolen by james tiberius kirk as a child it's his stepfather's car and it sounds great looks great but i only just realized something for a deep deep trek knowledge the fact that it was a corvette relates to 
Star Trek lore because in the days of the original series, Leonard Nimoy would turn up at the studios in a Pontiac Bonneville, a 63 Bonneville, and park it next to William Shatner's car, which was a Corvette Stingray. So it's kind of perfect that Little Kirk is driving a Stingray in that movie. And then in Into Darkness, there are lots of cars in Into Darkness. Do you remember the Aptera? That three-wheeled American eco-solar power lightweight car. Yeah. That appears in Into Darkness, I think. Is it in Into Darkness? Oh, no, no. That's in Star Trek 2009, just before the Kobayashi Maru scene where Kirk sits the test to find out if he's a quicker driver than Kamui Kobayashi in Formula One. <laughs> I think that's what happens, isn't and it? And Maru, the internet cat, is the one presiding over the race. That's right. <laughs> in the end of Into Darkness, Spock chases Khan, played by Benedict Cumberbatch. Spoilers. Benadryl Cumberbund. Yeah. <laughs> Bucket Crunderdunder, I think, <laughs> is the correct pronunciation. He chases him through downtown San Francisco in the 23rd century, and there are loads of cars, and they most most of them look like sort of Jaro one-box MPVs of the future, but there's still a San Francisco streetcar there as well, as I love. There always will be. In Picard, there are references to cars. Troy and Riker's son, Thaddeus, was a collector of cars. No spoilers there. I won't go on any more on that. Can you imagine how upset you would be? All the car collectors now, all these people with enormous collections full of storied metals, rarefied event vehicles, these 250 GTOs and 911 this and 911 that and all that nonsense. And then a thousand years, admittedly, a child will just collect them. It's like, oh yeah, I've got some cars. <laughs> Carl, historical objects. Perhaps I should have explained he was a collector of model cars. Uh, I like the way the future looked in the past. That's why I love Star Trek. There have been some sort of crossovers as well into the real world with cars as well, because people have actually built road-going versions of space shuttles. I won't go into detail here, but there was a road-going version of the next-gen space shuttle, which was a perfect facsimile of it. Hey, just exactly how road-going was it? I mean, you know, you say road-going. It had wipers to make it road-legal and indicators that worked. And it was based, I think, on a Ford Aerostar, I think. And a guy used to drive it to the Burning Man, but then made it road legal so he could drive it on the road as well. And then there was an original series shuttle built that was road going, the NCC 1701-7, the Galileo. And I think that was based on a Winnebago. I was looking, there are loads of pictures of people who've painted their people movers to look like Star Trek spacecraft or starships with, you know, the Federation livery on it or the Starfleet livery. And they're all people movers, you know, Pontiac Transport, Honda Element. They look great. If you take a big box, paint it grey yep. and put some decals on it to make or just paint it so it looks a bit like the shuttle and then get a couple of, I don't know, sufficiently large bits of PVC sewer piping and put one along each side down the lower side of the vehicle. That's going to look pretty much like the shuttle. That would do it. I used to have a bumper sticker on my Sora, which said, my other vehicle is a Federation Starship. Because <laughs> I always thought that the dashboard of my Toyota Sora, which was beige, 
really resembled that wooden arch behind Picard on the bridge of the Enterprise D from The Next Generation. It absolutely reminded me of that. I've been scratching my brain here, trying to think, what are the most Star Trek cars available to wrap this up now? I mentioned the Land Rover Discovery. There was, of course, the Chrysler Voyager. The Mitsubishi Space Star. Close enough. Yeah, what was the other one? There was a Mitsubishi Star... The Starion. No, there was another one, Space Wagon, wasn't there? Yeah. Oh, no, it's not quite Star Trek. But I figured that Simca might have got close as well, because Simca had a range of cars. There was the Simca 1301, the Simca 1501, but there was never a car labelled the Simca 1701. But if there were, it would have been the Chrysler Matra Simca Rancho, a car that I love anyway. That's technically the 1701, the most famous registration in Starfleet. However, Gareth, yeah. the most Star Trek car of all time, Go on. no matter where you are in the world, yeah. it's the one you get from Enterprise. Rent-a-car. You beat me to it. Exactly <laughs> that. The Enterprise rent-a-car is the most Star Trek car there is. Unless, of course, you count the 1972 AMC Javelin AMX Defiant, that's one for deep, deep Space Nine fans, or the Citroen DS9. Oh, Oh, how did I not think of that? I'm actively disgusted at myself. That's a real car and everything. Yes, it is. And if you're really into Car Trek, look out for the Audi advert that is on YouTube that features not one but two Spocks, Zachary Quinto and Leonard Nimoy. You're going to love that. It's not a recent advert. <laughs> no, it isn't. No, it must be, what, five, six years ago? It was, ago it was a Super Bowl commercial a few years ago. No, it's Megan. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think of more car puns. Oh, you had me at DS9. I hate you so <laughs> Boys, well done. Thank you. And we haven't even mentioned the superb Star Trike that was built. Have you seen that? It's a motorcycle where you sit on the main central pod of the USS Enterprise, as it were, with the two warp nacelles either side of you and the source section in front of you the wheel comes out of beautiful <laughs> but hey that's a bike it doesn't count you've been listening to three very sad deep trekkers i say trekkers rather than trekkies i don't know if you agree but from lieutenant alex goy captain <laughs> very good from lieutenant commander zog captain and from me Captain Gareth Jones. This was Gareth Jones on speed. Live long, people, and prosper. Raise your hands, boys. Raise your hands. Sorry. 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 They can't see us. Send us an email, see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Bang.